Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 345 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, it is a beautiful, glorious early summer here. Uh, The birds are chirping so loudly this morning when I record it, you might be able to hear it. And uh, I think you're going to love tuning in today. We've got ABC News' Paula Ferris with us. She is the former host of Good Morning America and The View, and she walked away to pursue something new. We talk about identity and so much more. Today's episode is brought to you by Financial Peace University. They have gone virtual. And if you want to get one year free access to financial peace and every dollar plus, text Carry my name, to 33789. And today's episode is brought to you by Nona Jones's newest book, From Social Media to Social Ministry. Uh, it comes out June 23rd. You can download a free guide at digitaldiscipleshipbook.com. Well, uh, I want to thank all of you. Man, I'll tell you, leaders, it's been so good to be able to hang in this together. Uh, We pivoted the entire show back in, what was that, April, I guess, to talk about coronavirus. And now we're starting to bring you some of the episodes that we uh, pushed into the summer. Uh, We will obviously still be talking about current events. But I just want to thank you for your partnership. You guys have been sharing the show like crazy. We can't quite explain it. May was an all-time record month for us here on the podcast. And thank you for leaving ratings and reviews and for sharing on social. Uh, I just want you to know, I read every rating, every review. Thank you so much for doing that. And wherever you listen to your podcast, if this is your first time or you're still fairly new to the podcast, make sure you subscribe and tell your friends about it. We also have show notes that we do for every episode, including transcripts. Uh, sometimes you want to drill down a little bit more. And you know what's fun? The transcripts are searchable. So just wanted to say thank you to all of you for Uh, Well, just all the encouragement, all the support, and I'm so glad that uh, we get to try to bring you timely and timeless conversations here on the podcast. So financial peace is something a lot of people really need, especially right now. And coronavirus has been a massive disruption. And with so many tens of millions of people unemployed, they're not sure they can make next month's rent. Now think about it. These are some people in your church. These are some people in your company. Our friends at Ramsey Solutions have a way that you can give hope to people who are facing uncertain times with their money and you don't even have to leave your home anymore. Financial Peace University is the proven plan that has helped nearly 6 million people stop worrying about money by learning how to pay off their debt and save for emergency. It's completely free to lead, and it's all done through a video chat, quite like Zoom. You don't have to take the class yourself first, and Dave Ramsey and his team handle all the teaching. They can give you everything you need to lead with confidence. So if you really want to help people and get in their corner, sign up. As a result, you get one year free access to financial peace and every dollar plus a value of $129. How do you do it? Text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y to 33789. That's just Carrie to 33789 and really get in your people's corners personally, financially. I have lived with margin and without, I promise you, with margin is so much better. And Nona Jones, who's been a guest and will be a guest again this summer on the podcast, has a brand new book. And, you know, I talked to Nona about this recently. On February 3rd, our friends over at Barna released a new State of the Church report. And get this, so this is a month before COVID, okay? 
online church was the last concern of church leaders. They're like, yeah, whatever. Anyway, you know, three weeks later, boom. And now everyone's asking, what does digital ministry look like? So that's what Nona tackles in her brand new book, From Social Media to Social Ministry. She outlines some digital discipleship principles, very practical instructions inside the book to help people actually grow their faith using digital social platforms, no matter what the size of your church. She is the Global Faith-Based Partnerships Director at Facebook, and she is also a church leader. She introduces you to the most popular social media programs, the best tools to position yourself for digital ministry, and gives you a step-by-step guide on how to implement. So it releases June 23rd, her new book, Social Media to Social Ministry. Soft cover will be available August 4th, but for a limited time, you can get a free practical guide to using Facebook for building a digital community. You can order the book and download the guide for free when you go to digitaldiscipleshipbook.com. So head on over to digitaldiscipleshipbook.com. Well, guys, I am so excited to have Paula Ferris. She's a really fun person to have a conversation with. And her journey's fascinating because in many ways, when we talk about this, she got the dream job, right? She is the host of Good Morning America. She's on The View. And a couple of years ago, she walked away. And we talk about how to decouple your identity from your calling, which, let's be honest, is a major issue for pastors, for entrepreneurs, for founders, uh, for senior leaders. I talked to her about what journalism has taught her about leadership. And we touch on COVID a little bit. She left New York City in the midst of it and was in uh, the Carolinas when we had this conversation She is just a fabulous person to have a conversation with. And so I am pleased to bring you my conversation with Paula Ferris. Paula, welcome to the podcast. Gary, it is such a delight. I'm so excited to be with you on the podcast. Well, we got to connect last year in Chicago at the GLS, where you hosted, interviewed, and did all the things you do so well. Um, I would love to know, so uh, ABC News correspondent, former host of Good Morning America and co-host of The View. What has, and journalism was always one of those back pocket career for me. I thought if it all, you know, changes overnight, I might try journalism at some point because it's always fascinated me. What has journalism taught you about leadership? Uh, Journalism has taught me about leadership to stick up for the underdog, to use Mm. your voice, to use your voice for positive change. And um, to not back down. I, I'm dogged in my pursuit. I've always been persistent. Uh, perspicacity is that word my mom <laughs> likes to joke about. But I've always been very proactive, and I like to take matters in my own hands. You could maybe say I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, <laughs> but it's taught me to be dogged in my approach and to champion those who don't have a seat at the table. Hmm. What is, uh, you know, it's always interesting, like having a a brief background in law, there's what you see on TV and then there's what you see in real life. So what part of what we see on TV shows about journalism is real? And then one part is just like totally made up fake. Like, give us an idea behind the scenes. There's definitely the ego. The ego does exist. Wow. Um, I wouldn't say it's on the same level as maybe the morning show, which a lot of folks have watched. With Oh, yeah. We've seen that, man. We got hooked. Yeah, I, I haven't finished it. But, um, you know, the ego is real. The tight deadlines. I think that's why I love it, because I'm somewhat of a procrastinator. I feel like my blood really starts to to boil. My blood starts to flow at the last second. So we have hard deadlines. Um, I, I, I think 
you know, the way that TV is done, maybe the production shot where you just show up and start talking, like there's a lot more that goes into it. So the way that the production is portrayed, I would say isn't so accurate. Um, but I say TV is a lot of work for a couple minutes of airtime. <laughs> so you might do a story that's two minutes long on Good Morning America, but what people don't see is, all of the planning, the pre-production, the production, you know, the producers on the phone coordinating, um, the shooting, the editing, and then the final piece is two minutes. So I say it's a lot of work for a little bit of airtime. Hmm. What's your favorite part of the job? Asking questions. Really? I, my nickname, Carrie, my nickname growing up was Paula 20 Questions, if that <laughs> tells you anything about my personality. I love to, I'm just naturally, you know, curious inherently curious. And I, I really like to ask questions. I like to get to know people on a different level too. What makes for a good question? Cause I basically ask questions for a living and there are different theories about what makes for a great question. What makes for a great question? I think, you know, just a thought provoking question. I, I think first of all, you have to put your subjects at ease. Um, like you before people aren't going to hear our pre-interview that we mm -hmm. did this interview, but I know that you, you know, at least perused through the book that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So you care about it. Um, so I try to put people at ease in the sense that I've done my homework on you. Um, I know what you're about. And also, I think that you can ask any question that you want, as long as you ask it respectfully. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's something that's been lost, especially in this moment in culture where we just want to call people out. I think... Um, you know, I, I've never, I've only been shut down from an interview once, and that was with the Duggars. Um, I don't know if your audience is familiar with them. Their publicist shut down the interview, but I- <laughs> What happened? You got to tell the story now. Wasn't because of the tone of my question. It was when they were going through the scandal with the brother mm. um, a couple of years ago with the allegations of molestation. So, mm. um, but I think there's no question that's off limits. It's just your tone and how you ask it. So any idea why the publisher called it off or? Publicist. She didn't want them to answer the question. Okay. So it was just out of bounds, that kind of thing. And the kids were, the kids were answering and she's like, we're done. And they wanted to continue to answer it. So, um, but she was done because, you know, publicists hmm. have to look out for their clients. So. How do you, because, you know, you're right. I think we live, uh, I've heard people say that really the style of question being asked today is as much a statement or an accusation mm -hmm. as it is a question. So is it true that you knew blah, blah, blah? Well, is that really a question or is that not a question? How do you put your guests at ease? Because this is something every leader has to do, right? There's always nerves, even going into a meeting whether that's at a church or in a business, like there's always nerves, you're asking questions. So how do you put your guests at ease? Um, Chris, Chris Voss, who used to, he wrote a oh, really yeah. book. I love, um, he's got some really great um, tactics. One is tactical empathy. And I don't, it's, I would say I've kind of done this um, inherently throughout my career, not knowing that there was a name for it. Tactical empathy is just listening to people and showing them that you care. Um, another technique is mirroring, which you, you get them to open up more. And mirroring is just repeating the last three words of what they said. So it gets them to open up even more and divulge more than they would have. But to divulge more than they would have. There, I just did it. 
exactly. See, there you go. Yeah. Who who are some of the most interesting people you've interviewed? Because you have a podcast and, you know, your right. broadcast role. Who are some of the most fascinating interviews? And then why were they so interesting? Well, I think, you know, I've done the myriad. I, I don't I don't want to name drop, okay? Like the, the cast of Star Wars and the cast of, you know, the Avengers. So you're talking about Chris Hemsworth and Scarlett Johansson and um, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, you've and, done it all. Like, let's just yeah, be exactly. honest. Yeah. So I, I've interviewed all types. Probably one of the more memorable. I have two memorable interviews. One, because I was born and raised in Michigan, yeah. and I'm a diehard Michigan Wolverine football fan. I interviewed Bo Schembechler. This was one of the first interviews of my career. So we're going back to when I was in Ohio, hmm. working for television affiliates in Ohio. Um, and I interviewed Bo Schembechler, who is my hero. And, and I I love him because he was the he's a very famous coach at the University of Michigan. So that's one that people are like, okay, but that's just my personal, you know, fascination and passion for Michigan football. Um, one of the more interesting interviews that I've done was um, in the last year with Tom Hanks. Oh, yeah. Tim Allen. And I did this interview at Disney World in Orlando, and they were there to promote Toy Story 4. And the way that um, Disney, because it was a collaboration between Good Morning America and Disney, the interview was. And they wanted to do the conduct the interview right in front of like Toy Story Land there at Disney. It was raining that day, and they put up a scrim to keep the rain out, but it didn't keep the rain out. And so during the interview, we are literally getting wet, if not soaked. Okay, and you know Tom Hanks would 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 morph into his cast his castaway character, and you know catch the rain, and um, they had. Such a good attitude about it, even though there was nothing we, that we could really do about it. And I thought, you know, that was such a revelation of his character because so many of these A-list celebrities may have said, I'm done with this. I'm better than this. And he just played along with it and showed his true colors, which are just grace and and uh, generosity and humility and handled that situation like, like I've I was so incredibly impressed with him. I mean, you're much better connected than I am, but I've never heard a bad story about Tom Hanks. Everyone he, says. Oh, he is the perennial nice guy. He yeah. really is. He's a, he's a good human being. But seeing somebody in that sort of situation, which is, you know, a, it's a challenging situation and seeing how they're handling it when the cameras are rolling, um, you know, I think spoke a lot to who he is and to his character. So we're recording this uh, really one month into the whole COVID pandemic, and uh, you live in New York, but we're recording this. You're in South Carolina. I'm north of Toronto. First of all, how is this impacting New York? I realize this is airing later, so the whole story will be different by the time this airs. But I'd love like New York City, and particularly where you live, your, your principal home is right in a hotspot for coronavirus. So what's it like on the field? It's, you know, it's, well, New York City is a, is a ghost town yeah. uh, for all intents and purposes. I live in Westchester County, which was like the, one of the first hotspots in North America be, besides Washington State. And, you know, we had um, a, a containment zone, which is, it was a new Rochelle. That's where my boys go to school. They sent the National Guard there to clean hmm. up the facilities and a lot of the businesses were shut down. And it's a totally different way of doing life. Um, you know, I, I would say that 
Um, you know, people are pretty much, I mean, they, they've been very strict from the very beginning, at least in Westchester County, and taking it very seriously in terms of social distancing. Right even before my kids' uh, respective schools were shut down, playdates were over. And we're talking over a month ago, social distancing. Wow. We weren't getting kids together for playdates. So the kids were pretty cooped up. And that's that that and then the kids' schools um, getting shut down, that led to our decision to come down to South Carolina, which um, is where we'd love to end up one day. My sister lives down here and we built a uh, built a home. We we're blessed enough to build a home and we'll probably end up here full time in the next, you know, next couple of years. But it's been great to have the kids run around and the outdoors and um, just experience nature down here. And that's why we left. My husband was has been working virtually. You know, he works, runs a top commercial real estate firm in Manhattan, and he's been operating virtually for over a month now. Um, hmm. We were told as correspondents to not even come in the office about five, six weeks ago. So uh, I've been doing everything remotely. The correspondents are, are, are via Skype, um, almost all remote. They're using a very bare bones staff right now. Wow. And uh, has that been an easy adaptation for you? I mean, everyone's had to adapt. Everyone. See, the thing is, is we're, we're truly all in this unfortunate boat together. Yeah. Our pastor's been preaching on a series on I will not waste this crisis. I think it's also, while it's a tragedy, it could also be an opportunity to reassess where we get our significance and purpose from because so much has been taken from us, whether our jobs, whether our finances, whether our family members who've, who have lost their lives to COVID. Um, it's a chance for us to reassess what defines us, how, how we identify ourselves, what our, what our purpose here is. And I think that, that it's up to us to, um, whether or not we're going to set a new direction for our lives. Mm. Do you think this is going to, I mean, it's early to say, and again, by the time this airs, it might be different, but do you think this is going to change journalism and how it's done? I mean, it was already changing, right? But Oh, it was absolutely changing. And I, th I think it's going to change just about every industry and how they do yeah. business. Um, and people are going to reassess, you know, even my husband who works in commercial real estate, you know, they're, they have a 40,000 square foot office in Manhattan. Can you, do you know how expensive that is? Oh, yeah. That eats into their profits, and they're seeing that they can communicate. They can still do deals um, doing Zoom calls every day, yeah. you know? And um, they've actually been, I don't want to say thriving, but they've been doing a really good job of communicating in this climate. And I think it's up to us to adapt to, you know, we, we've got to figure out a way to, to, to A, reassess, and redefine, you know, the the way that we have been going about our business and our daily lives. For us as a family, I mean, sure, we've been getting on each other's nerves. I annoy my kids and they annoy me. Let's just be real, okay? We're we're in the same house together 24-7. But um, you know, just it's it's also been an opportunity to to do so much together as a family. We are always asking for more time with our kids, more time with our family, and we're getting it. So let's get creative with it, you know, but let's give each other some grace because we're on top of one another at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Working to, you know, working parents, working from home. Are you homeschooling or? Yes. And it has been a nightmare. Can I yeah. just tell you? 100%. There are 7,000 different logins 
in 7,000 different portals. And my seventh grader, she's pretty independent and autonomous. But my fourth grade boy and my kindergarten boy, I mean, my kindergartner, Carrie, has more homework than the other two. <laughs> how do you give what? There's only 26 letters. Like, how, how do you how do you get more homework? I honestly don't know. A lot of it is drawing pictures, which okay. takes, takes a long time. Watching videos. But, you know, you have to do everything for them. And, you know, my fourth grade uh my fourth grader's teacher said, the boys are doing great independent learning. And I was like, they're not independent learning. Um, they're homeschooled school teachers. They're having to guide them through this, you know? Um, math, oh my gosh, I can't tell you. Like, thank God for Google because now, oh. now I know how to add fractions, which I, I forgot how to do it. I, I know how to add a half and a half or, you know, a half and, you know, but but I didn't, I, I forgot how to add a third and five sixteenths. So I know that, you know, you have to find the common, lowest common denominator. So it took me right back. But I'm having to help guide the the, the boys, the young ones through a lot of, a, a lot of work. And, and, you know, it's, I, listen, I have a ton of respect for teachers. I really oh, do. Oh, yeah. Guys. No, I know when my boys, you know, and it wasn't COVID at all, but when they were younger, I remember we got to third grade math and I'm like, I'm tapping out. This goes to your mom. I'm like, I know addition, multiplication, division. That's about it. I'm out. So I read a funny meme. The HuffPost um, published this article about some of the funniest memes and the funniest tweets that have been sent. And one father tweeted, my kid just asked me what a synonym was. And I told him it was a spice. We're just realizing like how ill-equipped we are to do this homeschooling thing. I, I I have been trying to put more of an emphasis on learning true life skills, though. Like, I'm going to show you how to make your bed. I'm going to show you how to do laundry. I'm going to show you how to make a sandwich, make your meal. You know, they have their daily chores, but I want them to learn about like some real skills that they're going to need down the road. Not just, That's a good attitude. Not adding fractions, for God's sake. So, <laughs> Real you have life a skills. For that. So, <laughs> I want to get back to journalism for a minute. Um, how do you, how was it changing? Because even the economic viability, the whole like everybody listening to this podcast mm-hmm. is having to adapt at some level. You know, whether you're in the airline industry, you're changing. Churches are changing overnight. Um, all businesses, like your husband's firm, they're changing overnight. So. I'd love to drill down a little bit more from where you see it. And I realize you're not, you know, an executive vice president at a network, you're a correspondent, you're the talent, the on-air person. But like, what were the threats before? Use that word lightly. Use talent lightly, please. Use talent. I'm sorry. That was a wrong term, right? That's such <laughs> no, a... But it just, it, I just think it's the funniest word because it, you know, insinuates that they we have talent and some some of us just don't have talent <laughs> doing what we're doing. <laughs> Um, uh, I love I, your I sense know. of humor. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I, how's it pivoting? And where I, do you see it going? It's been pivoting. It has been pivoting um, for so long in terms of resources. You know, I when I started out in broadcasting, I started out as a, as a production assistant, shooting, editing, and producing. And the only reason that I got on the air, Carrie, is because my news director knew that I could shoot, edit, and produce, and I was decent on air. So I was one-man banding, so to speak, okay? So I was doing, I was producing everything, shooting everything, editing everything. I mean, you name it, all right? Doing my own hair and makeup, everything. And while, 
TV has kind of gone that route. I think slowly over the uh, it's over the last couple of years where where we're doing more and we're finding ways to do more with less i think the thing that we're going to get out of it is that the ways and that we're connecting with our audience um through a crisis that's what's going to change the ways that we connect with viewers where it's been um uh, whether it's been online or it's been through a broadcast, I think we're we're trying to get really creative, um, and it's it's going to be a game changer in our industry in terms of how we connect. Hmm. Hmm. And then, um, what like when you're a correspondent right now? Are you just reporting on an event that you're investigating from your home, and you're just like phoning that in right now? All kinds of investigating from South Carolina. Um, no, I mean, we have the network. I work for the network uh, right now. And the network, I say it's equivalent. Like you work your way up as a coach mm. from Pee Wee League. I don't know, in Canada, like, you know, junior high, high school coach, college coach, yep. and then the NFLs. The NFL is the pinnacle. Correct. The network is the pinnacle here. And um, so it's, we have correspondence. I say that because as a network, you're you're covering the entire uh, United States of America. So we have correspondents all throughout the country and producers all throughout the country. And we can do our job just about anywhere. I have a right. tracking mic, um, which is just a little microphone that I plug into my phone. And that's how I send, even when I'm at Goodmore, even when I'm in New York, that's how I send my tracks in. I speak into the tracking mic, and which is plugged into my phone, and I send it through an app. I, I record it on Voice Record, which is just um, an app that you can download, and then I send it through our internal system, and that's how they get my tracks for the stories. That's how I voice the stories. So wow. I, I can kind of do my job anywhere, though. As a New York-based correspondent, you know, I, you know, if I were in New York, I'm sure I would be covering um, COVID a lot, a lot more than I am now. But they're really only using a couple of journalists. They're using mm-hmm. a very bare-bones staff. Like I said, we were told not to come into the office. Um, about five, six weeks ago, because they don't want, we've had several cases at the network. Uh, We actually uh, tragically just had um, one of our cameramen and and stagehands who lost his life. Good morning, America. He passed away due to COVID. Yeah, he went in complications, um, Tony Greer, uh, mid-March, and he passed away. I'm so sorry to hear that. It's sad. And um, so anyways, we've, we've been... We've been on a dialed back staff. Hmm. The media journalism, you know, especially over the last five years, has fallen under a lot of criticism for how they're handling stories, etc. Newspapers, perhaps a little bit more than TV, although TV can get polarized too. What do you think the media has done well in the COVID crisis? And then, what do you? Is there anything you wish it would do differently? Absolutely. I, I think I would probably start with I, what I wish we would do differently. Is I wish that we would cover it. Um, with facts and not fear. I Mm. think we've created a lot of paranoia and panic because anytime there is the unknown, that's where you stir up and you agitate the the panic. And I feel like we've done that. And if we could just stick with the facts instead of um, focusing on the unknown and the paranoia and the panic and the fear, um, I think that the nation, our nation, you know, the United States and the the world, I think would be a lot calmer than it is. 
But unfortunately, we've like ginned up all this fear and that starts to, a domino effect and that starts to unravel. And that's what you're seeing. I mean, um, you know, leading with death count, just death count with no context, I think is irresponsible. I think we need to mm. be able to contextualize a little bit more. There's an argument, though, that it is the fear that actually generates the clicks. We're in the attention economy and you need eyeballs. Oh, uh, the ratings are up. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Because of the very thing that you just talked about. So if, I mean, I get it. I totally get it. I'm not trying to defend it. But how, what would a story look like if you led with facts rather than with fear? How would, how would that feel differently to a viewer or to a reader? I think you would feel empowered in some senses. You would feel, instead of feeling helpless, at the end of the story, you would feel hopeful or you would feel like you've been given a tool to do something positive about it. Even though it's a tragic situation, you would feel like you're equipped to um, and, and that you can um, and that you've been giving some been given something tangible to actually do about the situation rather than feeling completely helpless and hmm. helpless. Yeah, you know, the the argument is that the media overblows things and they polarize things unnecessarily, etc. Any any further thoughts on that because I think you you're raising a really good point. I I tend to be grateful for the media. I would be on the less critical side. I don't like everything I read. People have opinions. I don't like the polarization that's out there. But I think we need the media and I think we need mainstream media because alt news terrifies me. Um, so I just love any more thoughts you've got on that because, you know, media has taken a lot of blows in the last few years. No, I think the media had, and some of it rightly so, and we've had to look mm. ourselves in the mirror. Um, and, you know, I think especially in the political realm, it's, it's, it's hard to, to say that there has been objectivity. Okay. If you just look at like, how can one version, one network have one version of the story, and another network have a totally different version when they saw the same exact thing. And I yeah. think recognizing that each of us has an inherent bias, you have an inherent bias and I have an inherent bias, and then recognizing and owning our responsibility to always cross-reference because the average viewer can't distinguish and differentiate between a reporter and um, a commentator. Mm-hmm. Okay? Commentator doesn't have to be neutral. Okay, and but the lines, unfortunately, have become so blurred that it's really tough for the viewer to a trust the media and um, to trust the information. So uh, that's why I say, um, you know, you it's it's up to you to a recognize your inherent bias, recognize that you see what you want to see, Carrie, you hear what you want to hear and then take the the responsible steps to cross reference your information. Don't get your information from your echo chamber. Mm-hmm. Get your information and cross-reference it with another source, maybe a source you don't necessarily agree with, but it's it, but especially in this day and age, it's it's not going to change. But but the the onus and responsibility is on us as viewers, as listeners, to cross-reference, recognize that inherent bias that we see what we want to see and hear what we want to see, and then make sure that um, the information that we're getting is is balanced, that we're getting it from another source as well. 
So how do you try to make sure that that's reflected when you report? Because right now that's what you are. You're not an anchor, you're a reporter. So when you're reporting from the field on a story, how do you make sure that you end up either recognizing your bias or not going too far in one direction or another? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you practice that yourself as a journalist? I just tried, I mean, I tr- my goal is like when I'm done with an interview, I don't want you to know, especially a political interview, I don't want you to, f- I don't want to feel like I've tipped my hand about my political leanings in any sense. And I try to be fair and firm. My, my motto and mantra is fair but firm in my interviews. I'm going to ask you regardless of your persuasion, political persuasion or else, or um, otherwise, I'm going to ask you, some tough questions, but I will do so respectfully. I think mm. the respect has to be there. The tone has to be there. But my goal is to make sure that different voices are represented. And if we're giving a voice on um, subject matter A, that we have another voice on subject matter B. So that oh, okay. is balanced. So you can bring in a perspective from the right, from the left, from the middle, wherever, and just make sure that your reporting doesn't yeah. lead in one I, direction. I don't want to be the story. Ah. Talk about, I want them to talk about the content. And, but that's the tough thing. We're in a YouTube culture where people want to be the story. Journalists, reporters, some, some of them are in it for the wrong reasons. But I would say most of the people, the people that I work with are really great and reputable. That's not why they're in it. They're in it because oh. I believe in truth telling. So you got a brand new book called Called Out, and it uh, came out in April. You Congratulations on look, your book. I have it too. All right. Look at that. We got yes. two copies out there. Yeah. That's amazing. And um, the only it's, a, it's a fun that book. that are in publication. <laughs> What's that? I said we have the only two copies that are in publication. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and some great chapter titles too. So uh, News Anchor Kills Career Over Burger and Fries. That may be the best chapter title I think I've ever read, Paula, <laughs> which is you. awesome. <laughs> but you did. You walked away from two dream jobs, which is sort of the premise of the book. I mean, you were the host of Good Morning America and The View. It doesn't get a lot better than that in journalism anywhere in the world. Talk about that. Like, why did you give that up? What happened? What led up to that? And um, why would you ever leave a dream job? You know, I left it because I felt God was calling me out of a dangerous space where I was addicted to my job and I was addicted to achievement and accolade and accomplishment. And I looked around. I was burned out. Okay. I still Mm. loved what I did. I like your video about burnout. For me, hmm. I still loved what I did, but I loved it too much. It had become my drug of choice. It be, had yeah. become an addiction. And I looked around at the landscape, and I think this is how you can kind of sense when God's pulling you in a different direction. My health was failing. I knew that God was trying to get me to slow down. I could just sense it. My relationships were failing with my husband and my children. My relationship with God was was strug- was a struggle as well. And I just knew that I'm like, God, you called me to do this, right? So if so, why does it feel so wrong? Why does it feel, why are my professional choices clashing with my professed values? Mm. That's when I knew that I had to make a change. I didn't feel like God called me to burn out. I didn't feel like God called me to lose sight of what was most important. I didn't feel like God called me to to watch my health fail. And um, so 
I was, you know, I knew how crazy it was and fear really paralyzed me because who walks away at the height of their career and who gives up these dream jobs, these, these, these um, hefty positions. Um, and I would like to say that I was obedient enough to hear God speaking to me and telling me to slow down and that my, um, you know, priorities were totally jacked, but I didn't. And I, I, I continued to lean in and burn out even more and, and everything continued to fall down around me. And it wasn't until I went through a personal crisis that I knew, okay, God, I know you're trying to get my attention. And if I don't slow down, you're going to make sure I do slow down. And I went through, I write about it in the book. I went through this season of hell, so to speak, which within seven months, Carrie, I had five major crises happen to me. I had a Mm -hmm. miscarriage with an emergency surgery I had a concussion. I Someone randomly, I was getting ready to go live for Good Morning America on Wall Street, threw an object at my head, concussed 60 miles an hour, um, was knocked out of work for three weeks. The day that I get cleared to go back to the office after the concussion, I get in a head-on car crash. Then, oh. then I get influenza, which turned into pneumonia. And so oh. if God, it's like you have to slow down long enough to see that God's trying to change the direction of your life. It's scary. I was Hmm. scared and paralyzed of the fear, the fear of failure, the fear of what people were going to think about me. Was I a hack? Could I not handle it? Would they just think that I was an unmitigated disaster? Um, And who walks away at the height of their career? But I knew that God was, was, I knew that God was trying to send me in a different direction. He had to get my attention and he did. And then probably the the toughest part about it, though, was once I walked away from these two dream jobs, I was totally lost without them. I wasn't an anchor Hmm. anymore. I could no longer introduce myself. Hi, I'm Paula Ferris. I'm co-host of The View and anchor of Good Morning America. I couldn't do that. I just a random correspondent. I launched a faith podcast. So it's, you know, we can sense when God is, is, is pointing us in a new direction he doesn't always show us the next chapter, though. And yeah. So I wanted to know what it was going to look like. And I'm, you know, I was, I'm still kind of in that ambiguous space. And I feel like God wants me to still branch out still. I don't know exactly what that looks like. But when God is, is pointing you in a different direction, he may allow these unfortunate events to happen to you. He gets our attention. And then, and then he can speak to us. He can speak through sermons, through scriptures, through songs, through dreams through trusted people in your life. And I really felt like God did that. Um, But I had to, it was in that space of just not knowing who I was outside of what I did, which was really humbling. And honestly, I felt guilty because I'm a woman of faith and I've said my whole life, I'm not defined by what I do. I'm defined by who I am. But I think I was just from the very beginning rooted in the wrong things. I thought my purpose and my calling was to be an amazing broadcaster um, when in actuality, like my purpose has nothing to do with my job. My purpose has nothing to do with my career. My purpose is unshakable and unchangeable and it's loving God and loving people. And my vocation, my vocational calling um, will shift and it will change. And it's just the vehicle by which I'll love God and love people through my purpose. And so I had to learn that, but it was time of crawling on my knees with tears, you know, admitting the guilt, admitting the hypocrisy of 
um, you know, the haughtiness from which I'd proclaimed I'm not defined. I could walk away and I'd know who I was. Well, guess what? I didn't. I did. I, oh. I did walk away and I had no idea who I was anymore. Okay. You've, you've read a lot of people's mail in that. Because I've said the same thing too, but haven't really, well, I've walked away from some stuff in my life, but it's a really interesting to play that game in your head, but then to actually do it. So I want to ask you a question. It's going to sound trivial. I hope it doesn't, I don't mean it in a trivial way, but did journalism lead you to that point where it fused your identity and your work, or did you lead yourself to that point? I think it was a mixture of both, okay? okay? Um, journalism it can be a very ego-driven accolade. Oh, she's the Emmy Award-winning correspondent, you know? It, it's very much an, uh, an industry that is rooted in ego. But we are very much a society that is rooted in career and doing. I, Carrie, one of the first things that you introduce yourself to somebody and they, and they say, hi, I'm so-and-so, what do you do for a living? You know, yep. what, do you, what, what do we ask our children? One of the first questions we ask them when they're able to formulate a coherent thought, what do you want to be? What do you want to do when you grow up? Right. And what do you want to be is really the what do you want to do question. Yes. Is really, is. that's what it is. And so our society has placed so much emphasis on doing instead of being. And that doesn't stop at the pulpit. We are yeah. told routinely we need to find our calling. Our calling will find us. And it's always related. It's synonymous with career. Is it not? Calling yep. is always synonymous with career. So it was a little bit, I would say it's a, it's, it's a mix of my own failings and shortcomings, but also what society and church has taught us that calling is career, that value is vocation, and that worth is work. And that is an outright lie. Those are some good insights, some really good insights. I would love to go to the meeting in New York where you sat down with your boss at the network and said, I would like to no longer be <laughs> the host of Good Morning America and the co-host on The View. How did that meeting go? What was it like? I was really terrified of that meeting because not so much for James Goldston's reaction. He's the president of ABC News and he understood but I knew that it was kind of a career killer. It, I mean, I had been told that it's not a good move for my career. And I think there were moments when I was articulating this to him that I was going to walk away. And I was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? It's not like I could see the next step on the staircase. I couldn't even see the one that I was on. But I felt like God was definitely moving in another direction. I was being obedient. And I knew that when God calls you to something, he'll equip you. And so I was just hanging on for dear life. And I was like, God, you've got this. I know you've got this in the same ways that you parted the seas for Moses, you're going to part them for me. And you know, I was just really, um, there's a scripture from, I want to read it to you from Joshua. Joshua one, and this is when Joshua is circling Jericho. Mm -hmm. I don't know why he had to circle seven times, but sometimes we feel like we're circling, you know, and um, it's Joshua one, nine. And it says, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord. Your God will be with you wherever you go. And so that fear that I felt, it's something that we all experience, especially when we're making um, an important life-altering decision, but it is on us to push past that fear. Mm -hmm. and that's 
have I not commanded you? We are commanded to push past that fear, to be strong and courageous, to not be afraid, even though we feel it, um, to not be discouraged, even though we feel discouraged. That's totally normal. But to push through it, we're commanded to do so. And guess what? God's got us on the other side. Yeah. He's going to be with us wherever we go. In the same way he parted the seas for Moses, he's going to part them for us. And so much of the, the Christian walk, the faith walk, is just about taking those steps, about being obedient and um, stepping out in faith and pushing past that fear, which we all experience. We all experience it, and the onus is on us to push through it and um, to be obedient. And honestly, like the, it's, it's uh, just so rewarding when you, when you can push past it, and God really blesses you on the other side. So there's probably some leaders here who are feeling a similar pull, but it's so difficult to give up something successful, whether it's for the prestige, for the success, for the money. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure it wasn't exactly a pay raise to your next uh, mm-hmm. job. You probably experienced some downward mobility. How did you talk yourself through that? How did you get yourself to the point where you're like, yeah, I'm committing career suicide here conventionally. Uh, I'm walking away from a bigger paycheck to a smaller one. How did you talk yourself through what so many people would have thought was not a great decision? Right. I mean, a lot of people, I was told that I was crazy to give it up. Mm. But I know that when God calls you to do something, God will equip you. I knew God was going to meet me on the other side. And I knew that it may not look like success according to man's standards, according to the world standards, according to society's standards. And that's where, like I said, I had to discover what true calling and what true unshakable purpose is all about. So I had to get back to the basics and learn who I was outside of what I did. I, I have a purpose. To, I know I, my only purpose here is to love God and love people, but I now know I have a purpose statement that has nothing to do with what I do for a living. My purpose statement is I'm Paula Ferris. I'm a wife, mother. I'm a lover of God and Jesus. I am curious. I'm a question asker, and I am dogged in my approach, and I champion others. That has nothing to do with the career, right? Hmm. Who I am as an individual. And I had to detach myself from what society told me success was. And I had to root into that. And I had to, I had to also realize that, yes, my worth isn't my work, but vocation will change throughout our life. We feel backed into a corner, right? I love the analogy of a vine and a branch. You look at a healthy vine and then you see several branches coming out of it, right? Your vine is your purpose. It's your faith calling, which is never going to change, Carrie. It's unwavering. For me, it's loving God and loving people. And the branches are my vocation. As long as I'm firmly rooted in loving God and loving people, I can branch out. I can do new things. I'm not one-dimensional. I have many branches. I can off-ramp if I want, all knowing that the reason I'm doing it, that my vocation is just the vehicle. It's just the conduit to love God and love people. But I've got to stay firmly rooted because if my vocation becomes my identity, uh, becomes my significance, becomes my worth, becomes my value, becomes my calling, then guess what? The moment that there's that inevitable vocational shift in your life, you will have a full-blown identity crisis. You won't know who you are outside of it, and you will struggle. And that, I mean, I've been there. So accepting hmm. vocation, that your vocation will shift 
And also like peeling back the layers. Don't, when I say don't look at yourself so one-dimensionally, I don't look at myself as a broadcaster. I think what makes me good at being a broadcaster? I'm curious. I'm tenacious. Uh, I love to ask questions. I'm a champion of others. Guess what? That translates to a lot of different things, right? Don't back me in a corner anywhere anymore. God can use that in so many different capacities. This may have just been a chapter of my life. I don't know. God, but God will still use those talents in whatever branch you're on, in whatever capacity you're on, knowing that um, to be a healthy branch, you need to stay connected to your vine in your purpose, loving God, loving people, realizing what you do is just the conduit, just the vehicle to love God and love people. See, it's it's interesting. A lot of people, uh, and we hear this from numerous guests, they talk about being called by God or sensing a call from God. So I want to ask you what I ask a lot of guests, which is, how did you know it was God? Yeah, exactly. And I think um, I did an interview. This was one of the few aha moments I've had in my life. In the book, I do an interview with David Shedd. You don't know who he is. I had no idea who he was. But he is the director of, he was the director of the intelligence agencies in the United States after 9-11. There are 18, okay. 19 intelligence agencies, the FBI, the CIA, et cetera, et cetera. He was the director of those. And, and I remember interviewing him. He said that he felt called to go into government. And so I was like, okay. I'm so sick of this word being thrown around and nobody's able to really define it. We throw it around, you know, go find your calling. It'll find, I, I don't even know how to, ex, how to explain what calling sounds like, what it looks like, but yet we throw this word around and it's almost always associated with career. Okay. So he told me vocational calling. And remember we have faith calling or a purpose, which is unmovable, unshakable, unchangeable. And then we have a vocational calling. He says, you know that God is vocationally calling you when three things happen, okay? And it has to be all three things. A, are you good at it? B, do you love it? And C, do other trusted people in your life recognize that you're good at it and that you love it? Now, Hmm. it's not enough just to be good at it and for other people to recognize you're good at it. You have to love it too. It's not enough to just love it. You have to be good at it too. It's those three things. And I look back at my life um, as a broadcaster. Was I good at, you know, question asking and, and being a broadcaster? Did I love it? And did other, pe- did other people speak into it? And all three applied. A, my nickname, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. born nosy and inherently curious, okay? I love asking questions. I'm good at it. I love it. My nickname was Paula 20 Questions growing up. I wouldn't shut up and stop asking questions. And C, my high school drama teacher, Mr. Barsoon, and then my two college professors, Mr. Leitenheimer and Mr. Craigle, uh, all, all three of them were saying, you're good at this and, 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 and you love it and you should do it, okay? So I look back at my own life and that, those, that three-step formula totally applied. I look at my son who... I'm telling you, he's my middle child. He is the, like one of the most gifted athletes I've ever seen. Mm. And I'm not just saying that because I'm his mother. Other mothers come up to me. His best sport is golf, okay? He doesn't love it. So we notice he's good at it. And he notices he's good at it, but he doesn't love it. So he's not being, and I know that's not necessarily vocation, but he's not being. No, I hear what you're saying. 
Yeah. My dear friend, who's a business correspondent that I work with, she is a brilliant um, strategist and consultant. And I, I have recommended to her, I was like, you need to do this full time. You need to be a consultant full time. Other people have noticed it, that she needs to be a consultant and strategist. She said, I don't love it. Okay, so you're not being personally mm. called. So are you good at it? Do you love it? And do other trusted people in your life notice that you're good at it and you love it? That for me was like an aha moment when it comes to vocational calling. Wow. And you had that theoretically in journalism, right? You loved it. You were good at it. Other people saw it. And then yeah, you walked exactly. away into the unknown. Yeah, but that doesn't change my talents. Uh, and I think this, when this next area where I want to branch out, God's still going to use those, but they're going to manifest in different capacities. My husband's a great leader. He's been a basketball coach, and um, he was captain of his of his basketball team in college and high school. And now he he's a manager at a massive commercial real estate firm in Manhattan. What is this similar? Like there, it's leadership. He's good at being a leader. Yep. Okay, so like. Peel back your layers, okay? Stop looking at yourself one dimension. I had to stop looking at myself as just a broadcaster. I'm, you know, I'm curious. I ask questions. I love this. So I, that can translate That's to good. many different capacities. So don't don't box yourself into a corner. When you had that season where five things happened at once, uh, you know, the miscarriage, the accident, the concussion, the, you know, everything. Influenza, pneumonia. <laughs> yes, <laughs> How did you move through that? Those are not easy to recover from. No. Um, and that's why I was like, I knew like, I knew God was trying to get my attention. My health was failing. I, yeah. Okay. Emotionally, physical health, relation, relational health. Yeah. You mentioned your relationships too. Is it, would you call it burnout? I was burnt out, but I wasn't burnt out to the point where I didn't love what I did anymore. I was like, God, hmm. I still love this. So that, that's what felt even crazier is that I still loved it. Mm -hmm. I think I loved it in a twisted sort of way because I was addicted to it. I was Uh, addicted to the achievement. I was addicted to that high and I was addicted to the accolade. How did you break yourself of that addiction? God did. Like I said, I would like to think that I was smart enough to get the first hint to hear God when he was saying, you need to slow down. But I needed to experience this personal crisis. I needed to go through that season in order for God to slow me down. He physically had to slow me down. Otherwise, my addiction would have gotten the best of me. Do you ever miss hosting Good Morning America or The View? I do. Yeah. And And I think it's normal to still feel like I have had unfinished business. You know, to feel like I left something out there. Um, But I am just clinging to the truth. I'm clinging to my faith. And I know that um, I know I I don't, because I don't define myself and I don't get my value from vocation anymore. And I just kind of see it for what it is, is this is an opportunity that, you know, for me to love God and love people uniquely through whatever capacity I'm in. Um, It doesn't pang me as much. Um, it doesn't keep me up at night. I'm I'm at peace, and I know that God's in it, and I have to, you know, push past that fear, like so many of us, everybody experiences. I have, but I've been commanded. I know God's with me. Hmm. I can be strong and courageous. Paula, you've shared that you and your husband a number of years ago went through a really tough season, and we're maybe even thinking about not staying together. Um, oh yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because there's a lot of leaders where it may be going well at work, but it is not going well at home. 
And I'm mm-hmm. encouraged that somehow you figured out how to work that out. Like my wife and I did. We went through a really tough season a long time ago too. And would love to hear that part of your story. Well, we, uh, we're college sweethearts. We will be married 20 years this September. Congratulations. I know. I only look 20. I'm kidding. No, I feel old. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel so old. But um, we have been together since 96. About 24 years now. Yeah. And we went through a really tough patch early in our marriage before we had children. And it was mainly me. Um, uh, I'm so glad that John fought for our relationship because it didn't feel like there was much to fight for. And I don't want to get into detail. And I, sure. I, I kind of, you know, mention it in the book. But, you know, we, you know, things happened and, you know, that we both regret. Um, but at the end of the day, like I moved out and I was wanted to file for a divorce. And I remember my parents telling me, you know, my parents, thank God for them, because they didn't tell me what I wanted to hear. They told me what I needed to hear. And they said, you know what? You are focused on John's failings and shortcomings, but you've got a lot of your own. You need to get your own house in order. You need to get yourself together because the way we see you treat him is not very fair. So the fact that my parents didn't um, enable me say, oh, you're right. He's a jerk. You should just, you know, you need to be happy. Um, That, and also I just like, neither of us really felt at peace. I can't really describe it. Like I said, it was before we had children. We fought for something when it didn't feel like there was anything fighting for. And I can only say it was because of our faith. I just, I really felt like I didn't feel at peace about it. And, you know, I've done, we've done a lot of things in our lives that to many people would seem crazy. We've moved so many times um, from Ohio to Chicago to New York where we didn't know anybody, but we felt peace about it. I, we didn't feel peace about that, but about, hmm. peace about getting divorced. And so we stuck it out, even though it didn't feel great and we didn't want to, and we worked on it. And it was not better overnight. It took years and years. And, um, but I feel like we both look back and we're like, thank God um, for forgiveness and thank God for redemption because the unforgivable happened and we were able to move through it, um, you know, through godly counsel and, um, you know, making sure that the people around us were encouraging us and we got rooted in a really good church, which really helped. Um and then when we started having kids, we were like, okay, we're going to make, we're, you know, this is it. We're good. Um, things aren't perfect. They never are. Yeah. You know? Well, on this side of heaven, we all struggle, right? Exactly. I think it's just, it's giving the other person grace, giving yourself grace and making sure instead of just focusing on the other person's shortcomings, like what can you do to get better hmm. and you control. And when you take the focus off of, someone else and their failings and focus on yourself and just improving yourself. Um, um, That was really an important mindset paradigm shift for me. I realize it's a long journey um, and one that, you know, we've been down, everybody has their own story and the facts are different, but you know, we're at the point now where we're really happily married again. And it seems like that may be where you and John are. What have been some keys 
when you look back, like, like, oh yeah, we did this and that really helped it get better. Obviously the counseling, the looking inside, the forgiveness, the, all those things, but are there any rhythms or disciplines or things you did that you're like, oh yeah, this, when we did this, we started to have fun together again. Cause that's what a lot of people, they just don't like each other anymore. Right. Don't know. They don't like each other. I mean, the thing about like John and I, we laugh, we have a similar sense of humor, which is a little demented and probably sophomoric, I would say, (laughs) but just like doing things together. Like we started playing tennis. I'm terrible, but like we started doing things together that we could, that the two of us could do not just with the kids, but think ways that we could connect. We started having um, Sunday night. We would call. We would have like a, a board meeting. We called it a board meeting. <laughs> just getting on the same page. What do we have going on this week? Making an intentional effort to go on dates for our kids to see us go on dates. Um, and I think getting connected with a connect group, getting involved with church, people that can get in your face and tell you when um, you need to be held accountable trusted people in your life that can do life with, that you can do life with in a loving, respectful, but truthful, accountable Mm. matter. Um, But yeah, those are a couple of things that helped us. I mean, honestly, like communication, you know, and that's where the board meeting and the dates and one other book that has been so transformative in my life. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners and viewers, if you're watching on YouTube, hi, um, have probably read it is The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Oh, it's so good, isn't it? It's honestly one of the most transformative books. So what are yours? Acts of Service and Physical Touch. And what are his? His Physical Touch and Words of Affirmation. Okay. Yes. So learning how to speak the other person's language, um, learning their triggers. Uh, Uh So just, but just learning how to most effectively communicate with them in their language and vice versa. Like John could bring me a fancy watch or buy me diamond earrings. That doesn't do anything for me. If he shows up at my office and brings me a cup of coffee or if he does something nice for me, acts of service, I'm like, that's awesome. That's like, that That gets me. Or if he, he, t- he jokes that he's like, you would take a back rub from a homeless person. And I love getting my back rubbed. I love physical touch. I grew up in a huggy family. I mean, my parents tuck me in bed every night, even when I went home, you know, even when I still go home, I'm 44 years old. My mom, my dad passed away this past year, but they would both tuck me in. They still tuck me in bed. Oh, like I feel loved with physical touch, not like creepy physical touch, but like no, a, no. Hug, a hug, you know, like just high five something. So, um, yeah, those are my love languages. And for John, you know, if I call him a worthless piece of crap and talk about all the terrible things he's done. Like that's a guttural stab in the stomach for him because mm-hmm. words of affirmation. Yeah. And, and you're, you're possibly an eight on the Enneagram. So that's not hard for you to say that. Is that exactly? Um, I, I'm like stabbing him because my words cut because it's his primary language. I'm now using that to hurt him. That's a good, another good book. And I find that just like, um, reading that book and kind of understanding where the other person's coming from and reading what makes them tick. Sometimes it's so simple as just, oh my gosh, it's not that he did this because he doesn't love me. He's doing this because he's communicating in his love language and not my love language. But the moment you know each other's love languages, it's like, it's really, and the same thing applies with your kids. Your kids have love languages. 
Mm-hmm. So, I think you wrote a book on it, The Five Love Languages of a Child, Teenager. It's There's a whole series, and it's helped us a lot. So, yeah. He's milked that for all it's worth. Every generation, oh. the primary love language for infants, the primary love language for toddlers, the primary love language for teens. You got it. He's been a guest on this show, too, so we'll link to that in the show notes. Well, I love Gary Chapman. That's, so do I. That, and um, I love that book. I love The Case for Christ. Those are probably two of the most transformative books in my life. Hmm. Okay, we'll link to them both. Yeah, it's so funny how that worked in marriage too, because I think I'm acts of service. And of course you think that because this is good for you, it's good for your spouse. And Mm -hmm. uh, my wife is like quality time. So time's one of my most precious commodities. And she's like, well, just sit down and linger. I'm like, can we be done in like, it's not good, but I'll go unload the dishwasher for you. Okay, does that impress you? Why does it not? (laughs) I don't get it. She knows because, you're just looking at your watch. You want to get out of there. And then that hurts her. I know. Oh. It's so wounding. And, you know, here we are, mature, relatively successful people, and we can't even understand the basics. But I get it. No, that's so helpful to know. And it's interesting because there's parallels in our story, too, where it was like date nights. And we call them shared hobbies, just stuff we enjoy doing together and understanding each other better. And I think there are those rhythms. And then, you know, eventually the feelings come back. It's good. It's good. That's awesome. And also recognizing that love isn't a feeling. I mean, love is a choice. Correct. Tough choice. And the most rewarding things, relationships that you have in life, you work hard for them. And there's ups and downs. There's peaks and valleys. And Mm -hmm. working through that. And it's not all about, I want to be happy. And are my, yes, it's, it's, you're going to have, it's going to, it's going to ebb and it's going to flow. But love is a choice. Hmm. It's a choice. Paula, you're also a podcaster. I want to make sure we mention that. So uh, yeah, you're a few seasons in. Tell us a bit about your podcast. And then I want to know, what are you learning through podcasting that perhaps journalism didn't teach you? Um, Well, I started the podcast once I walked into this ambiguous space. My boss, James Goldston, in that meeting, he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, "I I need to get my life back. I'd like to just be a general correspondent and I'd like to launch a faith podcast. I know how important my faith has been to me. And I wanted to invite influencers and newsmakers on a mainstream show, a podcast, to talk about their faith, regardless of what faith they are. So I like that I can sit across from a Muslim or a Jew or a Sikh, an atheist, and and we can have conversations, respectful conversations, and I can, you know, learn from them. And they can, that's an opportunity for me where I feel like they're, my purpose and my faith calling is really, is really um, living out because I, this is the way I'm loving God and loving people is sitting down with them and having a respectful conversation, regardless of whether or not they adhere to my beliefs. Mm -hmm. So um, I really enjoyed that. Um, I really enjoyed the podcast. And I think what I'm learning is that, People just want to be heard and people want to be respected. And the people that I've talked to, like, they're not afraid to have a conversation. They just, people want, they want to be heard. They do. And they want, and they want to be respected. It's a totally different format from broadcast. Broadcast is very slick and produced, overproduced. This is just a natural, organic conversation between two people. And I've found that you can really go so much deeper when you have, a kind of a free-flowing conversation and an organic conversation, one that's not necessarily um, inhibited by time constraints. 
I agree. You know, here we are an hour into our conversation. And I always think, particularly when you get guests like yourself who are used to being interviewed, and often you have to think in sound bites, you have four minutes between commercial breaks, and you really don't get very far. Um, no, you don't even scratch the surface. No. And then you're compressed and you feel constrained. And I love it because I feel like, you know, when this podcast works and it, it's worked quite a bit and I love this conversation, it's more like a dinner or a lunch with a friend where you just kind of meander. You have the breathing room to meander a little bit, try a few things that worked, some didn't work and, you know, and then just bring the conversation to people. So they're like, well, I feel like I know Paula Ferris now. That's really, really cool. If you said dinner or lunch, am I supposed? Were you supposed to send food, Gary? Um, yes, I can get Uber Eats to South Carolina. No problem. <laughs> we can do that. Hey, we are very quickly in these early days of coronavirus, probably getting to virtual meals too. So we're looking at that. Like, I, I listen. I know take out everything. So, uh huh. Oh, um, send anything. Send Chick Fil A. Oh, I'm with you on that. We have one in Canada, so they don't deliver all the way up here, but that's great. They're great people. Okay, last question, and this is just a bit of a hobby. I want to write a book on it one day, but as a journalist, how do you guard against cynicism? Uh, you just have to guard your heart. You really do. Um, I think many journalists and myself were skeptics, you know, because um, we're kind of trained to be or we're inherently born that way. But I think... Um, you know, I think you just have to guard your heart. And, um, you know, I, I, I can remember some moments where, you know, it was, um, this was years ago and, you know, we were first on the scene and, you know, we're high-fiving because we got the story first. But what had happened was, you know, somebody had lost their life. And I'm thinking, gosh, how desensitized and callous have we become to humanity? Um, when we're high-fiving over getting there first, getting to the live shot, getting the story first, but forgetting the reason why we're there is because of a tragedy. And so I think as a journalist and a reporter, you know, we see the best and worst in people, but just doing what you can to maintain your humanity and your heart for people, keeping your connections and maintaining close friends and guarding your heart and, you know, checking yourself when you're getting a little too callous and when you have become desensitized to reality. And it's very, that happens a lot. Um, and many times it's a coping mechanism because we see so much tragedy um, mm -hmm. that, it, that the desensitization can be subconscious. I don't want to say it's so intentional, but um, yeah, it's something that, that it's a constant challenge and something that needs that we work on. Do you have any disciplines or habits that help you guard your heart that way? Um, I just, you know, I try to, even with the coronavirus, you know, um, ABC has been doing like a good news newscast. Um, you know, it's online, but, you know, trying to, I try not to read so much of the negativity if it's not balanced with the positivity. Yeah. So that's yeah. probably one of my balances. I try to contextualize and I try to, um, you know, your mind, you know, I try to guard my heart and my mind too. Mm, that's good. Paula, this has been so enjoyable. Any final thoughts? No, I just want to say that I hope that the book encourages people and helps them to root into what their unshakable, unmovable purpose in this life is and to discover their true calling. And I thank you for the support. If you've bought it, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And 
I'd love for this message to get out there, even in a pandemic, God can do what he wants with it. (laughs) Paula, it's been a joy. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'll look for the (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Thanks. Well, I would love to have you dive into the show notes if you want a little bit more. We've got some shareable quotes. We've also got transcripts for you and some key insights from the episode. So you can head over to kerrynewhoff.com. And uh, yeah, you can find everything there absolutely for free. Of course, subscribe for free as well. We would love to have you do that. I've got a What I'm Thinking About segment coming up in just a few minutes. And I'm going to talk about some questions to ask when you or as you or after you reopen your church. So there's a lot at stake. Leadership has never been more complicated. Here are some questions to ask. Uh, Next episode, I've got Mark Miller. Man, I don't know when Mark and I talked. It might have been six, eight months ago, but he is the vice president of high performance teams at Chick-fil-A. We get all into the rapid growth at Chick-fil-A, how to develop talent, how to create a leadership pipeline of internal and external talent, and so much more. Such a great conversation. Been so anxious to bring this to you. And it finally airs. Next episode. Here's an excerpt. It's built on this idea that we are here to serve those operators. I, I know several years ago, I had a time, a chance to spend some time up at Harvard. And I remember after a course on strategy, which I'll, I'll confess was one of the most confusing things. I mean, I just, I didn't understand any of it. It was, <laughs> it was, it was like, oh my goodness. It's like, I guess I don't understand strategy. It was, it was mind boggling actually. <laughs> and they asked me then to come up and explain Chick-fil-A strategy. And I'm going, uh oh, like after I don't know what you just said for the last two hours. And so I drew a smiley face of an operator with a bunch of arrows leading to it and, and labeled them all the different departments and functions of our business. And I said, we exist to serve these men and women that run these restaurants. And and then they make more money and we make more money and it all seems to work. And that was all I had to say about that. <laughs> That's great. Mark. So we're here to support them. So that's next time on the podcast. Again, subscribe and you won't miss it. We've also got Patrick Lencioni who's coming back. We had a great conversation. Bob Goff, Ryan Hawk, Danielle Strickland, Darius Daniels, Joe Saxton, uh, Henry Cloud, Sam Collier, Levi Lusco, John Tyson, so many more. Uh, Well, now it's time for what I'm thinking about. We're going to talk about questions to ask. And these are good, like when you don't know what to do, ask these questions kind of questions. And this is brought to you by Financial Peace University. If you have not yet helped your people financially, you can become a leader for free and get access to financial peace in every dollar plus by texting CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33789. And don't forget to check out the deals going on right now pre-release with Nona Jones's new book, From Social Media to Social Ministry. You can get it all at digitaldiscipleshipbook.com for free. So, Uh, You're reopening your church. A lot of you have done it. Some of you are going to do it. If you're in an area like me, you may not do it for a very long time. But the question is, what do you do when you don't know what to do? And sometimes as a leader, you can just focus on all the things you can't do. You can focus on all the things you can't control. And I think the coronavirus lockdown really got us to a point where we're like, oh, there's so much I can't do. So here are five questions I would ask when you're thinking about reopening your church, or honestly, these these translate fairly easily into almost any difficult decision. So question number one, what does this make possible? So yes, when people are reopening their churches, they're discovering that they've got 10 to 30% of their previous attendance. They're discouraged, they're frustrated. 
uh, when we went into lockdown back in March, right? It's easy to say, okay, we got to pivot to online. But what a lot of leaders miss is they focus on getting back or they focus on, okay, what, what do we do? Or they settle into a pattern too quickly. Just ask yourself again and again, what does this make possible? See, crisis is an accelerator. And shockingly, one of the things crisis can accelerate is progress. I think a good case study is this podcast. I mean, we talked about it for about a week. It was like, okay, what are we going to do? And I had pre-recorded two months of shows and we pivoted and said, let's move all those to the summer and let's just interview leading experts about crisis. And so that's what I started to do. It was a pile of work. And we thought, okay, it's a way to serve leaders. What we didn't realize at the time is uh, it would lead to absolute record downloads and that we would pick up more leaders than at almost any other time for listeners. And I just couldn't believe it. And so what does this make possible? Uh, a lot more than you probably think, okay? So don't give up. Um, it, it, asking the question, what does this make possible, will shift your focus from what you can't do to what you can do. Okay, second question to ask when you don't know what to do, and I'll, I'll relate this specifically to reopening your church. What will our ministry look like five years from now? Can we go there sooner? That's it. It's like, where are we going five years from now? Can we get there sooner? If your answer is, oh, we're just going to keep doing the same thing. Well, those are other problems for another day. That's probably not a good thing. But for a lot of you, you kind of knew, yeah, we got to go online. Yeah, we got to take social ministry more seriously. Yeah, you know, we probably need to do some kind of hybrid workforce where uh, some people can work from home. We have to be more flexible. Well, again, crisis is an accelerator. Um, but I'll tell you what this can do. When you're in the middle of uh, a crisis and a disruptive period like this, you can accelerate that change. And, you know, I'm pivoting right now from doing a lot of in-person speaking to a lot less uh, speaking. Why? Because I realize I can reach a lot more people standing behind a microphone in a studio than I can jumping on airplanes and going to events and conferences. And uh, the same with our church. Our church, the one that I serve at, has grown by over 50%. And we have like numbers from before COVID and looking at those numbers, yeah, we're a much bigger church and uh, we're going to go there anyway, but this just accelerated it. So what you want to do, same things happen in um, the workforce, right? All these companies that were like, yeah, we're not sure about virtual work are now like, yeah, we're there. So think about what you were going to do and then just do it faster. Okay. So that's another thing to look at when you're reopening your church. How about number three? What will this do to our influence with unchurched people? I think this is huge. So many church leaders are just so anxious to get back and they're trying to cram the rules, you know, like, well, do we really have to be six feet apart? And what about every other row? And do we have to wear face masks and all that stuff? Listen, you're getting a reputation with the very people you're trying to reach. And I'm afraid for a lot of church leaders, it is not a good reputation. So you really have to think, and this is, this is scriptural. I mean, for those of us who are Christians, it's very scriptural, right? You want to try to live an honorable, peaceful life. And your reputation with unchurched people is really important. So think, how is how are people we're trying to reach going to view our decisions? And if they see you as rogue or irresponsible or selfish, uh, they're probably not gonna follow you as much. Here's, here's a fourth question. And this is like maybe my lawyer hat, I don't know. What does your insurance company say? Uh, you might be like, this is what we're gonna do, but it's probably a good idea to sit down with your lawyers and insurance company and have a conversation about it. Thanks to Rich Birch for that note. Uh, if you go rogue on your reopening, will your insurance still be valid? And often the answer is no. And then I love this question. I asked this question for years, but this is the fifth question I would ask when you're thinking about reopening your church or after you've reopened it. Two years from now, what will we wish we had done? 
That is such a clarifying question for me. I usually frame it as five years from now, what will I wish I had done? That goes to, you know, whether it's unfollowing someone on social media or how to deal with conflict or, you know, do I really need to be involved in this or not? Five years from now, what will I wish I had done? Honestly, it's a great question when you have a disagreement at home. I always come back to that question and it's very clarifying. Sometimes it leads to action. Sometimes it leads to me not acting. Um, Sometimes it means I pick up the phone and talk. Sometimes I mean I just let things go. But when you ask yourself that question, and let's frame it because things are changing so quickly, two years from now, what will you wish you had done? When you get an answer, just go do it. Just go do it. And I hope those are some clarifying questions for you. That's what I'm thinking about right now. Hey, if you haven't yet checked out my resource, The 30-Day Pivot, I think the future is full of a lot of change and the future belongs to pivoters. Head on over to the30daypivot.com and get a framework that can help your church pivot or organization or business pivot in as little as 90 minutes every 30 days. It's like super accelerated strategic planning and I really hope it's gonna help you Well, guys, thanks so much for listening and uh, we'll talk to you next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change and personal growth to help you lead like never before.